Hello, everybody. Thank you for being here. Wanted to talk about today's topic. I know it can be politically loaded. And what I would like to do is take the political thread out of it in order to better, you know, serve students, which is often the case is when we take out some of the the elements of anything that's um, a controversial issue in our society, it becomes difficult to talk about. And so I purposely said that these are some of the sensitive issues. So that's what we're going to discuss. And so I would like for you to feel free to ask any questions you would like uh, and address anything. And we can certainly talk beyond this webinar as well. I started a blog chat on AHA process. It, uh, if you go to the blog, there's how do I get my immigrant students to want to speak? It'll be up to right now five parts and part one and two are there if you want to continue that chat. The focus of this webinar is for uh, students who are struggling and re or refusing to speak English because it could be either or and students and staff that struggle with cultural practices and misinformation. Uh, sometimes when we have students who are struggling with English, we default to cultural reasons and there is never a good reason for a student to not advance academically. There's never a good reason to say that a student shouldn't do something. If it is something to help them enter corporate America or, or into the workforce. And so I like to dispel some of those myths and approach them kind of dead on with a lot of compassion. Um, but it is still one of those conversations that lingers throughout this entire um, genre. There was a book I read a long time ago by a man named A.J. Jacobs, and one of the my favorite quotes was, uh, there's an obliviousness to living in the dominant culture. And I mean that in the most gentle way possible. One example I'd love to give right now is my most recent one. There were four of us that went out to dinner, and three of us were men. And we were totally oblivious to our, our friend, a female friend, who was being totally dismissed by the host. Um, she brought to our attention once the, the menu had been ordered, um, she started saying, did you all notice that he was completely taking care of your needs and asking you questions about your, you know, your diet, your, what your preferences, the sauce. And anytime I said something, I was interrupted. And the three of us kind of looked at each other, kind of dumbfounded. And so the dominant culture at the table was male. Uh, sometimes the dominant culture is gender, sometimes it's race, sometimes it's age. And whatever the dominant culture is at the moment sometimes causes a blind spot for whatever the minority is that time. Sometimes it's size, you know, sometimes people are, the dominant culture in the room is tall and people are totally oblivious to what's going on with the short people or me <laughs> when we're in the room. So sometimes being sensitive to the fact that the dominant culture isn't not strictly about race or ethnicity. It could be about staff versus students. Um, and sometimes there's just blind spots. So I just want to put that out there as a beginning spot to discuss. When we look at all the countries, a list of all the countries where Spanish is the dominant language, one thing that you'll notice is that for the most part, they, and I'm going to use a political term, they're third world countries or developing countries. We live in a developed country. Consequently, 
the dominant culture many times has to do with economic levels. And it's just practices that become norm within one governmental entity versus another. And so culture many times does come from the government you come from. These three countries that are being pointed out specifically are more like second world or they're more developed than the other countries, but they're not on this continent. So we see less of those students. One thing I do want to bring up is this. There was research done with the children of missionary workers um, called Third Culture Children, and that's where the original research came from. The, um, it has been expanded to other communities as well. And one thing that your students deal with if they actually come from another culture uh, is a third culture reality. So I'm going to explain what that is. So you have a family that is originating from one country. They move to another country, which is culture number two. And the union of both within the same person is called third culture. And part of the problem with third culture that manifests many times in school and in society is that sometimes people believe that you need to choose one culture over the other. It's kind of that monolithic thinking where I can't be both, I need to be one or the other, and it causes a problem. And it really isn't until people are at peace with both cultures within themselves because it further defines who they are that they're really much more amicable to open conversations. Many times what I have found is third culture people are really only understood by other third culture people because it's about those choices that you make. And sometimes that's where Spanglish comes from. Uh, and it's basically just saying the word that comes to your mind first. It, you know, it isn't about any kind of purposeful hybrid of cultures, but things start to mix. And so when students struggle with identity, they are in conflict. And people who are in conflict attract conflict. So sometimes people don't know how to actually approach those kinds of situations. And truly just kind of listening to kids is where, you know, where you're going to find most of your solutions. The third culture traps that some of your students are stuck in is the need or the supposed need, the perception to need to choose loyalty to one culture over another. When you do that, what I have found in my experience is that kids tend to stereotype themselves. Nobody needs to stereotype them. It's like if they um, basically denounce one culture over the other, they start fitting into a mold that's a picture as opposed to a full person. Um, and the desire to fit in sometimes leaves you hanging with the other group so you kind of tend to volley and you kind of have a you know this inner battle as to where do I belong. And if we know anything about middle school, particularly, my identity is what I think everybody else thinks I am. You know, when we tell kids you need to, you know, be yourself and identify who you are and stand up for yourself. The truth is developmentally, most kids in school, their perception of themselves is what they think everybody else's perception is of them. And that's a very hard process to fully get through during your school years. And when we choose one culture over another, uh, or we favor one, you know, there's sometimes a pride versus arrogance um, facade. There's a front, and people really can't tell, are you proud or are you being arrogant? 
depending on the words you choose, the conversations you're in, how you choose to express yourself, if you have limited vocabulary, then you probably come across as arrogant, where if um, somebody says things and asks questions, depending on how you respond, do you respond graciously, do you respond harshly, that kind of limits the conversation or opens them up. So sometimes just talking about how people say things, how the people address things, and saying, when you say that this way, it makes people respond this way. And that, that usually, my experience has been good self-reflection for kids who are struggling. Um, and they constantly compare themselves to surroundings, which I've already addressed. Um, when someone is in conflict, it's easy, it's easy for them to feel defensive. If you've got kids who are struggling with a language, then you've got kids who are struggling to fit in. When they struggle to fit in, they become just a constant defense mechanism. There is something that consistently has that guard or the game face on um, or, or just some sort of this is my space, that is your space, and the two spaces don't come together. And so what I have learned from many teachers and many students is that modeling being relaxed, modeling being um, friendly is a big part that helps set the tone for a peaceful resolve between staff and students. Struggling students often develop a reputation for being combative. And when kids have that reputation, and I'm not talking about all Hispanics, obviously, I'm talking about your at-risk Hispanic population more specifically. You know, we have to look past that facade and let someone, you know, watch us, watch us relax, watch us be calm, watch us reflective when we ask them questions and get answers. You know, sometimes we have to think out loud for them to hear where our own struggles are with kids who are struggling to connect or refusing to connect. Language becomes a very personal part. The more ostracized you feel from the bigger numbers at school, you know, or the more uh, cloaked you feel by your own group and unable to go within other circles, you know, you start to be much more rigid about your identity. You know, you start to be less open to other groups. And usually it's a staff member who helps the segue between that rigidness of thinking and the ability to intermingle with others. And, and it's just that relaxed feeling. There's a lot of research on voices, accents, and sounds, and other people's perceptions of intelligence. Um, there's, there's a lot of, there's been some studies done that if somebody has an Australian or an English accent, next to other accents, those two are perceived to give the person uh, an air of more intelligence. A lot of Spanish-speaking accents don't fall within the category of being perceived as the person being intelligent. And so a lot of kids struggle with that type of stuff. I did a, a, a broadcast, you know, self-broadcast where we recorded videotaped kids doing newspaper stories. They had to write their own um, copy. And then we recorded a newscast. We did some cooking lessons as well. Well, when I showed the video, they were all excited. Even when they when they found out, you know, we had finished 
the recording. We got all our projects in. And on, a, I think it was a Friday that we were going to show the video of everyone's work. What really broke my heart was I had some girls who started crying while the video was being shown. And when I finally got to them, and they couldn't speak for quite a while because they were tremendously sad, um, what it came down to was they were ashamed of their own accent. They didn't appear like the people they saw on, on television. And so that was kind of a shock to me because I just I didn't know what to do with that. So one of the things that I I learned was that the kids needed to talk a heck of a lot of a lot more than what they had been. They needed to get much more accustomed to their voice, and they couldn't be in this position where they spoke very little. So public speaking infused into the lessons became much more urgent. Plus the feedback that they were getting at the time, you know, and and acknowledging the things that were being said that were correct to get to help build up their courage. I think a lot of times we have kids who don't speak very much in class. And if they're not encouraged to use their voice, they're not going to find their voice. Uh, John Baugh, a professor at Washington University, he's done a lot of uh, research on this and it's under linguistic profiling. So you can look him up um, he has a lot of research that basically shows that people with certain types of accents or certain types of dialects, when they go shopping for cars, the prices of the car are much more expensive than people who don't have other accents. There's also when they call to get an apartment, um, certain accents or certain dialects, uh, the people make a reservation over the phone for an appointment, rather, to, for people to come see it, other accents, other dialects. They tell him that the apartment has now been sold or it's already been taken. And so he's done extensive research on this fact, if you need the background on that. One of the hidden rules that surfaces when somebody um, either struggles with a language or has an accent that can come across as unintelligent is that it's better to not speak and have people think I'm stubborn about not speaking English than it is to be ridiculed or thought of as unintelligent. When I've had these kind of conversations with students and parents, um, pretty much I get a very quieted, a very closeted, that's why I don't speak. This is not something that is discussed out in the open. This is something that is very much held back in secret. Um, and it's something that because it's, it's attached to shame and shame is a very humbling and a very silent emotion, emotional state. So. I, again, I have learned that people really do need to exercise their voice in order to find it. Um, in order to build trusting relationships, teachers and students need to learn from each other. There's got to be a place where the teachers listen to students and then respond to what they're saying. It isn't monologues. It isn't one-way conversation, but there's an actual dialogue going on. Uh, students need to be taught how to be professional by being treated as one. One of the greatest examples is a teacher I, I know, uh, Ellen Williams. Um, she was her first year at a middle school. She was a, quite an experienced teacher and quite an expert in her craft. Uh, went to a middle school for the very first time. And when during the first year, she's, you know, roaming the halls, what she noticed was there was a tremendous amount of Hispanic students out in the hallway because they were being kicked out of class. So she went to the principal and said, you know, I just can't stand the fact that it is the same 
kids, the same makeup of kids, who are being kicked out of class and are in the hallway. I need, I want to teach these kids next year. Give me the ones that are being kicked out and in the hallway. And what Ellen did was she really took her time with lessons and she did something that the other kids felt no other teacher had been doing, which was she taught them how to hold conversations where she actually went back and forth. She got a rocking chair and she sat the kids in a circle around her every day during the lessons. And there was just this little um, motherish type circle and the kids really responded. Well, what happened was their grades started to improve, their behavior started to improve. And it just kind of drove home the fact that she there was an accessibility to willingness and to the desire to learn. What was not happening prior to that were the connections. One thing that is really, really important that I've discovered is that parents need to be told what their children are doing right long before they get the phone calls of what they're doing wrong. And that's where we get much more parent concern and parent buy-in and, and parents coming to the school as well. Uh, when we start telling them what they're doing wrong, they're already behind the eight ball in many ways if there's a language barrier. So building those bridges prior to any of that is, is very critical for the, the buy-in. Because if you make my parents, if I am a student and you're calling my parents and telling them what I'm doing right, then I am coming with even more force to be on your side and work with you. Um, dignity is a non-negotiable, and that is something I have found that, that is consistent with all students, not just Hispanics, obviously. But when, when the, a child's dignity is at stake or questioned in, within the process of discipline or academics, the walls go up. You know, if I'm less than the people around me, then I'll show you how much less than I am. And so, and kids who have that type of uh, defense mechanism or language barrier normally start distancing themselves automatically just by dignity being at question. One thing that I had was um, I taught a middle school, an, an English as a second language course during a summer school for middle school. And it's in the blog that I'm discussing now. Basically, we were told we have a whole bunch of kids in middle school who were struggling with the language, were refusing to speak in English or not able to. And so they had a collection of these kids for one class during a summer course. Well, on the very first day, I knew they needed to start talking. I needed to change whatever it is that had been patterned in the past. So on the very first day, I said, we're going to just introduce ourselves and we have a series of questions to answer and everybody has an opportunity to pass if you don't want to answer them. Well, we had a few kids that absolutely did pass, but when they found out that I was actually asking questions and we were actually in dialogue and it wasn't just one person speaks, then the next person speaks, and we got into questioning and digging deeper into who you are as a person, um, everybody who passed eventually wanted to speak and basically they wanted to be heard. And because they spoke on the very first day and it was a safe place, then it just was a pattern that was instilled throughout the rest of the semester. I saw those kids during the year as well. I had a floating position where I went from school to school. So I saw those kids 
afterwards. And every time we saw each other, there was an immediate desire to hold a conversation. And it was always held in English. Um, we had conversations about the importance of that too and, and being stronger in society. One of the things that I have noticed uh, that a lot of teachers do with very good intentions, but that play against the kids is they'll say things like, you know, you're better than the people who speak one language. And because you're better than them, you know, you can actually show them up. Well, that promotes a win-lose scenario when you walk into any room. Uh, I propose that when people, when you have students in a room, that you don't do the win-lose thing. Because if you have a group of kids who already have a belief system that says other people have the advantage, I don't have the advantage, regardless of what advantage other people think I have. What I've discovered is that if you do the language of inclusion, you are as good as anyone. You have your gifts to bring to the table. You being bilingual helps to support the people and the community around you. When it's much more inclusive and you take out that competition part for a people that research shows, for the most part, very humble, very quiet, doesn't complain, which all the marketing research also supports that, then what you have is a bigger willingness to be a part of the picture and less of the, you know, I'm better than you, because the minute somebody loses, then you're, you default to silence. And if you're the one who believes that you're going to lose uh, before you walk in the room, then you start with silence. Uh, but if you believe that you have something to contribute along with everyone else, it usually has a way of encouraging people to be much more a part of the dialogue. You know, you can't make people want something, but you can certainly make it attractive. English is not attractive if what the kids know about it mostly is kill and drill, quizzes and tests, grades and judgment. And so part of what I talk about in the workshop for Hispanic students is that unless you include robust joy, you're really not going to get very far with students. English is hard enough. If you're past a certain age, which is you know usually before five, it becomes harder to learn a second language. You also don't hear the sounds of a different alphabet or a different language. So th just that whole struggling part that is harder for some than others, you get past so many hurdles if you have robust joy, if you have laughter, if you have dialogues as opposed to monologues, if you have reflective questioning. Um, we had tons of opportunities to laugh because my students taught me that they had not been laughing with English. And an interesting thing happened. One of the first things I did to infuse laughter was they were all struggling readers. The, those students you know, were reading on a third grade level tops and they were grades six, seven, and eight. So one of the first things I did was download the script to who's on first. And what I said to them was, you're gonna get in pairs. One of you will be Abbott, the other one of you will be Costello. You will read the script to each other and there's a joke in this script. You have to find out what the joke is. Well, what was hysterical is that as they were reading the script, it was so convoluted that they were, they were laughing over it, how convoluted it was in the first place. And it took me a long time to realize they didn't get the joke, but they certainly had a great time. So we actually played baseball at some point 
with everybody wearing labels saying who you know is on uh, obviously at first base what's on second and so we actually and it wasn't until we physically acted it out that they actually started laughing for a different reason because now they understood now here's the great part it wasn't until laughter and other lessons that were much more significant for them that I noticed one huge difference. When I was going to class first thing in the morning, the kids were in the hallway while I went into my room and they waited in the hallway till the bell rang. Well, as I was walking in the hallway, kids were always speaking in Spanish for the most part. I mean, it was just, that was all I was hearing. After who's on first and the baseball game and one other lesson I'll show you in a minute, I started hearing them socialize in English. More importantly, they were laughing. English had now been attached to the emotion of joy. That's what made the difference. Because there was nothing I was teaching that was unique to the English language than, than what they experienced prior to this. And when I asked them, I said, guys, you all are speaking in English in the morning now. When I'm walking down the hallway, what happened? You know, and basically they had very similar answers. And they said, well, you know, English is fun or, you know, this class made it fun or now I, I enjoy English. I didn't like it before. So the fun factor exponentially basically drew back those defenses and those fears. And they were willing to make mistakes. They were willing to be, you know, wrong and corrected because now it was not a threat to, to speak the language. Um, well, I said this already, but let me reiterate, students must use their voice in order to find their voice. Uh, one of the practices that I insist uh, upon in class is that you must speak loud enough for everyone to hear you when you speak. I will not repeat what you say. If I repeat what you say, I disqualify the importance of your voice. So you must speak and you must be heard and people will respond to you, not through me. And so that whole presentation of somebody being um, speaking for themselves, responding for themselves, and the teacher not repeating what they're saying became a very critical part of kids finding their voice and developing their confidence. Here's one of the lessons that was meaningful and relevant to the kid. You know, pretty much we established that everybody's favorite song was not in English. So one of their homework assignments was to go home, uh, get write down the lyrics to their favorite song, translate it into English. And what I said was this, we will pay, play 30 seconds of the song. I'm not gonna play the whole thing because it takes too long. We played 30 seconds of the song. And then what I want you to do is tell us in English, the mean, what word for word translated for us, and then discuss what that song means to you and why it's important to you. Well, there was a whole bunch of confessions. There was a whole, I mean, like confessions, nothing heavy. Um, there was a whole bunch of stories about family and boyfriends and girlfriends and experiences and vacations and, or just a belief system or what they want it to be when they grow up. Or the, and it was, it was very, very close to their heart. So um, it, it just became a wonderful uh connection to, again, the English language and their strength. Some cultural practices 
are interpreted as disrespectful. As I've traveled the nation, one of the questions I've learned to ask my audience is, how many of you don't like being called miss, teacher, uh, or any other label where students will not say your name? And I've had teachers actually get very angry in telling me about, you know, I tell my students to say my name and they won't do it. They still call me teacher or they still call me miss. So one of the things that I want to make clear is this. The use of miss or teacher is considered extremely respectful in their countries of origin. It is the proper way to address people because one of the hidden rules that a lot of people don't know is that because of the invasion of English-speaking countries, particularly like in Mexico, uh, there were practices that were imposed, and one of them was that if you're not educated, you don't say the name of someone who is educated. You say their title. It's a very subservient language. Um, I and, and here's where a lot of people have a little bit of a conflict. I propose that it is very important for students to say teachers' names. But I also acknowledge that it is emotionally very difficult when that is taken as something of you not being worthy to do it or you consider it to be disrespectful. It's something that has to be done with a very kind heart, but still, and when kids finally trans, um, when they go from saying Mr. Teacher to saying, you know, Mr. Martinez or Mrs. Smith, then at that point saying, you know what, that was perfect. The way you just addressed me, that's exactly what I want you to continue doing. Excellent. Acknowledge and reinforce what you want kids to do because that's what attracts that kind of energy and that kind of practice. Um, that brings us to the conclusion of this webinar and I'll take any questions that you care to questions. have. Remind folks that Ruben is a longtime presenter for AHA Process and a consultant. So if you like what you've heard and you're interested in bringing Ruben out to speak at your building or in your district, please do reach out to us. Thank you. Um, yeah, I cannot underscore the importance of joy and trust. Um, those two things together, because one of the worst things that can undo anything that you try to do is when kids perceive somebody as fake or when they perceive that you're just trying to do your job and not connect to a kid. Um, as everybody here probably knows, the more at risk the student, the more they're going to read your body language. And if you don't talk about specifics that we want for kids, then they write the story they think is in our head. And sometimes it's not flattering. So, um, you know, just doing those kinds of connection things with a sincere heart is honestly the biggest way to make connections and make kids, you know, go through those obstacles. How can a parent English speaking teacher conference go? Okay, one, one of the biggest problems that we have with students is when they have a monolingual Spanish speaking parent, we ask kids many times to translate. And I'm going to highly advise we not do that. And I'll tell you why. Under the research, it's called parentification. And what happens is kids will translate for their parents. And they play parent to the parent. And what happens is this. Over time, as a kid gets older, it is not uncommon 
for the kid to all of a sudden subconsciously and, and consciously, possibly, start realizing, I have been saving you forever. I've been translating for you. And when the kid reaches puberty or the late teen years, and the parent still wants to be in charge or hold authority, many times parents lose their position of authority because the kids have had position of authority equal to them for quite some time. So what I would advise you to do is to tell the parent, you know, put some of the onus on the parent and say, um, do you have a relative or a friend who you trust who can translate for you? I would prefer not to use your child because many times within the process of talking, the kid has to report themselves. Uh, you can have something that goes out in a, a school paper or if there's a translator that can float between the district. But yeah, the, you need a translator and, and hopefully not use a child. But the bottom line is you need a translator regardless of where they come from. The information on how accents have powerful influence on how one is accepted. You're welcome. I'm glad it was helpful. And it's a very real part of what kids go through. Um, and again, it's connected to the emotion of shame. And you, you have to restore dignity when shame is at question. The, the pride versus arrogance thing, one thing I want to do point out is this. When somebody comes across as arrogant, you know, many times it's because they are either in conflict with themselves or they're confused about something and they're processing hard. When people process hard, they can come across very harsh. And it's the adult's job. It's difficult. I'll acknowledge that. It's the adult's job to sit back, breathe, and model a much more relaxed response in order to help them to also be relaxed and calm. You know, sometimes um, what comes across as arrogance is actually a signal that the kid is in conflict. I appreciate your all's comments. Uh, you can add, if you want to add beyond this webinar, uh, please post on the um, blogs underneath my, my article, and I'll be more than happy to continue the Thanks conversation from there. All right. Smile back at the